William Marsh Rice was a penniless young man when he left Massachusetts to start a new life in Texas in the early 19th century. Within a decade of his move, his success in business would make him one of the richest men in Texas. Rice was the founder of the William Rice Institute, which we know as Rice University. His legacy is a complicated one. His story of wealth intersects with the slave economy in Texas, and the story surrounding his death is questioned to this day. Was he murdered, or did the man who confessed to killing him get there too late? Had Rice already died of natural causes? Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the mysterious murder of William Marsh Rice. William Rice was born in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1816. The third of 10 children, Rice left school at the age of 15 to work as a clerk at a general store. Rice found he had a natural talent for business. At the age of 19, his father agreed to co-sign a loan which enabled him to purchase the store from the owner. In 1838, the 22-year-old made the decision to head west for new opportunities on the frontier. He packed up the stock of his store and shipped it by sea. He traveled to Houston by land, and by the time he arrived, he learned that stock, everything he owned, had been lost at sea. William Rice had to start over in a frontier town. He went back to work as a clerk in a general store, but his business skills helped him quickly turn things around. Within a matter of years, Rice was prospering and formed a business partnership with Ebenezer Nichols called Rice and Nichols, an export and import business. The wealth and growth opportunities Rice and his business partners pursued were associated with real estate, timber, and railroads, Rice also launched the Houston and Galveston Navigation Company, carrying ice from Boston to Galveston. His investments and business ventures made him one of the wealthiest men in Texas. And as a local merchant in Houston, William Rice profited from the slave economy of Texas. Cotton was king at this time, along with sugar. As a business owner, Rice and his partners were the sources of loans and credit lines for the community. There were no banks in Houston at the time, which meant rice and other merchants like him would be the source for local farmers who needed loans to expand their plantations. Some of the loans included terms that stated collateral for defaulted loans would be slaves. Enslaved men, women, and children were offered as security for loans and could be seized as payment if that loan went into default. This was a common practice in the antebellum South, one that helped make William Rice and businessmen like him very wealthy. Rice wasn't a plantation owner, but he benefited from and helped fuel the slave economy in Texas. And census records show William Rice was a slave owner. Some of the 15 slaves he owned over the course of his life were slaves he had seized as debt repayment. Now, William Marsh Rice was known for his wealth and his philanthropy, donating large amounts of money to charitable organizations in the state he had come to call home. 
He was involved in many aspects of life in the city of Houston, including what was known as the Slave Patrol. Volunteers worked to prevent the loss of property when slaves went missing from area plantations and homes. In 1850, William Rice married Margaret Bremen. When the Civil War began, the Rices decided to stay in Houston, hoping the war wouldn't last long. Rice continued to run his business ventures from the city and was known to be a unionist. Many people who lived in the South at this time were known as unionists, but they were constitutional unionists. They wanted to keep the union together, but were not aligned with abolition efforts or opposed to slavery. Which is reflected in Rice's volunteer work for the Slave Patrol and the business decisions William and Margaret Rice made during the war. Rice had a lot invested in the slave economy. His import and export investments relied on the slave trade and cotton. The Rice Historical Review notes records and ledgers from this era show William Rice's largest accounts were the state of Texas and the Confederate States of America. The Confederacy relied on Rice's businesses to help pay about $15,000 in salaries to their officers. Records also show Rice's wife, Margaret, supported the Confederacy by donating uniforms to troops and money and resources to their families. Margaret Rice died in 1863 at the age of 30. And following her death, William Rice left Houston for Mexico. Many believed he left because he was heartbroken, but it appears he had more motivation for leaving Houston. Rice's wealth relied on the import and export of that southern cotton, which was being blocked by federal forces. In 1863, When William Rice left Texas, he headed straight for a smuggling hub, Matamoros, Mexico. The Rice Historical Review found that historians estimate 320,000 cotton bales were smuggled out of that port city during the war, some for the Confederacy and some smuggled out by private merchants like Rice and his partner, Ebenezer Nichols, whose letters during this time reflect a cotton enterprise that was being facilitated from both sides of the border. Following the Civil War, Rice returned to Houston. In June 1867, the 51-year-old married 40-year-old widow Julia Elizabeth Baldwin Brown, the daughter of one of the early mayors of Houston. Elizabeth was known to her friends and family as Libby. Now, the summer of 1867, a yellow fever outbreak was moving through Houston. William and Libby Rice decided to leave the state of Texas. For nearly three decades, the Rices would split their time between hotel suites and apartments in New Jersey and New York, and they would often summer in Houston, where Rice remained active in his business ventures. Friends described the Rice marriage as a stormy one. And we know that in the early 1890s, Libby met with an attorney to discuss the possibility of a divorce, but she never filed. During one of his business trips to Houston, Rice was approached by an old friend, Cesar Lombardi, who was the president of the Houston School Board. Mr. Lombardi asked Rice to consider investing in educational efforts in Texas, 
and asked his old friend to help build a high school in Houston. William Rice was getting older, considering his legacy, and he wanted to do something bigger than just build a high school. Within a few years, he returned to Houston and met with Lombardi to tell him of his vision for an institute that would be separate from the public system in Houston. That vision led Rice to launch plans to create the William M. Rice Institute for the Advancement of Literature, Science, and Art in 1891. William and Libby moved back to Houston in April of 1896. Due to Libby's failing health, doctors had told her the warmer climate could prove helpful. In June of 1896, Libby Rice, feeling death may be near, and seemingly wanting to make a statement to her husband after she passed, well, she chose to change her will. Libby named her Houston lawyer, Orrin Holt, the executor of her will, but did not tell her husband about this decision. And she didn't tell him about the changes she made to the will, which claimed the Rices were residents of the state of Texas. That's important because Texas was, and still is, a community property state, And claiming residency meant Libby could bequeath half of the Rice estate as she saw fit. Libby Baldwin's new will made no mention of an endowment for Rice Institute. Instead, her will instructed 10% of her estate to go to her lawyer, Orrin Holt, for a service as executor. About $400,000 to members of the Baldwin family and $250,000 to establish an Elizabeth Baldwin home for indigent women. And she also noted her desire for a park to be created in her name in Houston. The issue with Libby's new will was that William and Libby had agreed to leave the vast majority of their fortune to the William Rice Institute. At least that's the agreement William believed they had. William and Libby's marriage continued to be stormy, and William Rice claimed Libby was losing her mind. He arranged for her to be moved to a sanatorium in Wisconsin. Libby was labeled hopelessly insane and died in the sanatorium on July 24, 1896. Following Libby's death, William Marsh Rice returned to New York City. He asked his lawyer, Captain James A. Baker, to draw up a new will that left the bulk of his estimated $7 million estate to the Rice Institute and named Captain Baker executor of his estate and president of the foundation. Rice's will also left a significant amount of money to his siblings. Months after Libby Rice died, William Rice's attorney, Captain Baker, delivered shocking news He informed Rice that his wife's attorney, Orrin Holt, had admitted Libby's will to probate, and Holt was the executor of her estate. If her will was validated with Texas residency, it would have meant millions from her husband's estate would be distributed as directed by Mrs. Rice. The millions Rice had planned to leave for the future Rice Institute would be compromised, along with the William Rice legacy. Captain Baker filed suit in the United States Circuit Court in Galveston, claiming William Rice was a resident of New York for the duration of his marriage to Libby Baldwin. Baker argued Libby Rice had no right to claim half of their estate as community property 
because they did not live in a community property state. The case was complex, and Captain Baker made it clear to Rice that the legal battle would take years. William Rice was contesting Libby's will, but Libby's family fought for her will to be validated. Neither William nor Libby had children, so after Libby died, her relatives were informed of her will, which led them to pursue legal action against Rice in their effort to claim the inheritance Libby had promised them. The complex and lengthy legal battle gave two people the time they needed to create a plan to benefit from the confusion around the Rice estate and eventually plot to murder to get what they wanted. As Orrin Holt and Captain Baker fought for their clients, William Rice's valet, a man named Charlie Jones, saw that the aging Rice could be an easy mark and he tried to work out a way to make some money off of him. Now, Rice had hired Charlie Jones when he was still in Houston. The 21-year-old was a jack-of-all-trades, so when Rice returned to New York, he brought along Jones, who served as a manservant, occasional cook, and a handyman. The millionaire, now in his 80s, had no children and led a secluded life in his Madison Avenue apartment. And William Rice was struggling with his memory, He became dependent on Charlie Jones to help him with all manner of things, including the preparation of his food. Rice's diet had significantly changed. He preferred to never eat meat or vegetables and heavily relied on broth and eggs. William Rice would generally be up at 8 a.m., head to the kitchen where he would eat his breakfast of eggs before going over his calendar and correspondence with Charlie Jones. Rice often had Jones help him write out checks for payments that were delivered to the bank or to clients. Charlie Jones would go out, run errands for Rice, return to the house where he would read newspapers with Rice before William Rice retired to his room for the evening. Rice mistakenly considered Charlie Jones to be an honest and trustworthy employee. During the court battle over Libby Rice's will, Orrin Holt handled Libby's estate dealings in Texas. He hired a New York lawyer to handle legal proceedings in the state. That lawyer, Albert Patrick, had a habit of defying legal ethics, which was something Orrin Holt maintained he did not know when he selected Patrick to join the team. When Holt hired Patrick, he instructed him to find proof that William and Libby Rice had been residents of Texas. The first time Albert Patrick visited William Rice's New York apartment, he met Rice's trusted valet, Charlie Jones. Patrick flattered Jones, told him it was clear he was underappreciated and underpaid. He said he could help change his situation if he helped him find or maybe create proof that William and Libby Rice were residents of Texas. Charlie Jones quickly agreed to help Patrick he agreed to use William Rice stationery to type a letter saying the legal battle was too much for him and he knew he couldn't win. The letter would say Rice was a citizen of Texas who wanted to settle the litigation and move on with life. But Charlie Jones got nervous and backed out of that plan. Albert Patrick met with Jones again and presented a new plan. This time, he used fear as motivation 
telling Jones that the 83-year-old William Rice could die any day and leave Jones with nothing, no means to provide for himself in the big city. Patrick suggested he and Jones team up to forge a new William Rice will and steal his estate. Albert Patrick drafted a forged will, and Charlie Jones tried but failed to get Rice to sign it several times. Albert Patrick moved to Plan B. He practiced William Rice's signature by tracing it from legal documents. On June 30, 1900, Albert Patrick forged William Rice's signature on the fake will. And that forgery bequeathed a major portion of Rice's estate to Albert Patrick. The plan was that Patrick would split the money with Charlie Jones after Rice died and the will was validated. To ensure the will could be validated, Albert Patrick drafted several letters from William Rice to himself, which detailed Rice's respect of Albert Patrick's legal skills, how he had come to rely on his advice in all manner of business and wished him to be rewarded for his hard work and dedication. Patrick even went so far as to create a forged settlement agreement for Libby Rice's heirs that was more generous than Libby's will had been, so there would no longer be a legal battle over her will being validated. Patrick felt in doing this, it would cover all manner of questions related to the 1896 will of William Rice and ensure the fake 1900 will would move forward, be validated. Patrick and Jones knew that Rice had at least $2.5 million in cash in the bank that could be theirs. Patrick figured after he negotiated the settlement with the Rice heirs, who stood to gain nothing if Rice's will was invalidated, he could then give Charlie Jones his share and walk away with a fortune. Albert Patrick felt his master plan was coming together. There were obstacles he felt he could quickly overcome, First, attorney Orrin Holt, who was still working to validate Libby Rice's will. Patrick figured he could get around this by approaching Rice's attorney, Captain Baker, about a compromise. But Baker refused, saying he had concrete evidence William and Libby Rice were residents of New York, and he would fight to invalidate Libby's will. Soon after that conversation, a trial to settle the will was set for November, 1900. And that trial date being set made Albert Patrick and Charlie Jones expedite the fix to the other major problem they had in their plan to benefit from William Rice's will. William Rice was alive. The pair agreed to try poisoning Rice little by little. Patrick acquired mercury tablets and told Charlie Jones to slip the tablets into Rice's medications and food that he prepared for him. Jones did it, and over the course of a few weeks, it made William Rice sick, but it didn't kill him. Patrick and Jones worked on a new plan, but a storm would intensify their desire to get rid of William Rice. On September 8, 1900, a devastating and deadly hurricane ripped through Galveston, Texas, causing damage in Houston as well. William Rice learned that many of his properties were destroyed, including a large cotton mill that had burned down after a smokestack collapsed due to the hurricane-force winds. When news of the damage was telegraphed to Rice by his attorney, Captain Baker, 
Charlie Jones informed Albert Patrick of Rice and Baker's plan to use $2.5 million in cash for emergency repairs. Rice and Baker agreed the money would be transferred over several drafts from Rice's New York bank, S.M. Swenson & Sons, to a bank in Houston to cover repairs and expenses. Albert Patrick knew if he and Jones wanted to get their hands on that cash in Rice's bank account, they had to act fast before all the drafts were completed, which meant William Rice had to die, and he had to die soon. On September 22, 1900, Charlie Jones learned that the first $25,000 draft would happen that following Monday, meaning Rice needed to be dead before the first draft happened so Patrick could redirect those funds from the account. Albert Patrick sent cyanide pills to Charlie Jones and told him to give some to Rice. They planned to inform authorities of Rice's death and make it appear as though Rice had been so distraught over his financial losses in Texas that he took his own life. But Charlie Jones would be surprised when he administered that cyanide to Rice in some broth and Rice quickly spat it out, saying something tasted bitter. The next day, Charlie Jones said Albert Patrick ordered him to administer something that had been on standby in case it was needed, chloroform. On Sunday, September 23, 1900, William Marsh Rice retired to his room for the evening. Charlie Jones waited a few hours, entered the room where Rice was sleeping, placed a towel covered in chloroform over Rice's face and smothered him until William Rice was overcome and died. Charlie Jones called William Rice's doctor to express his concern about how downtrodden and low Rice had seemed that evening. When the doctor arrived at Rice's apartment, he found William Rice was dead and noted on his death certificate that Rice died of old age, weak heart, indigestion, and mental distress. Next, Charlie Jones sent word to Albert Patrick that William Rice was dead. Patrick immediately made his way to the Rice apartment where he called an undertaker and informed him that according to Rice's will, he wished to be cremated immediately and Patrick would make plans for a memorial service. Charlie Jones then sent a telegram to Captain Baker in Texas notifying Baker of his client's and friend's death. The telegram said, Mr. Rice died last night under the care of a physician. Certificate of death, old age, extreme nervousness. Funeral tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Now, the one part of this master plan that Albert Patrick never expected to be a problem was the undertaker's response when he learned of the instructions to cremate Rice the next day. Albert Patrick had not done his research and didn't know that due to the intense heat required for cremation, it would take at least 24 hours to prepare the furnace. Patrick and Jones wanted Rice to be cremated because even in 1900, they knew evidence of any crime needed to be destroyed. They had tried several poisons in their attempt to murder Rice and needed to wipe out any trace of the crime. The last thing they wanted was an autopsy to be performed on William Rice. Now, due to the undertaker's concern about decomposition, 
He chose to partially embalm Rice's body while he awaited the preparation of the cremation furnace. Early Monday morning, on September 24th, Charlie Jones filled out several of William Rice's checks, making them out to Albert Patrick. In all, the checks would deplete Rice's bank account of all but $10,000. Albert Patrick signed William Rice's name to the checks and sent them to S.M. Swinson's and Sons Bank to be certified and cashed. Patrick's next stop was at the courthouse, where he filed the new draft of William Rice's will instructing the primary beneficiary was Albert Patrick. Back at the bank, it was clear from the moment senior partner Eric Swenson was shown one of the checks for $25,000 that something was off. The check was made out to Abert, not Albert Patrick. A representative from the bank called William Rice's home, not knowing Rice had died the night before. Charlie Jones answered the phone at Rice's apartment and affirmed Rice had written the checks to Albert Patrick for legal services. Now, the bank representative asked to speak to William Rice, but Jones said Rice was too hard of hearing to understand a phone conversation. The call ended, and Jones contacted Albert Patrick to tell him what happened. Patrick told Jones to call the bank and inform them that William Rice was dead, and his attorney, Albert Patrick, was headed to the bank. When Patrick arrived, he showed Eric Swenson, the bank's senior partner, legal documents signed by Rice, which transferred to Patrick all the money, stocks, and bonds held by Swenson and Sons from Rice to Patrick. When Swenson saw the document had been signed on September 21st, just two days before Rice had died, he refused to pay or certify the checks because of the suspicious dates and circumstances. Immediately after Albert Patrick walked out of the bank, Swenson contacted the coroner and the district attorney of New York to inform them something was off. Swenson sent the following telegram to Captain Baker in Houston. Mr. Rice died last night under very suspicious circumstances. His body will be cremated tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Later that day, Baker sent a telegram to authorities in New York ordering an immediate halt to the cremation and notifying authorities that he would be on the afternoon train and in New York as soon as possible. Albert Patrick was called into the police station for an interview with a senior detective, and the district attorney ordered that an autopsy be performed on William Rice. When Captain Baker arrived in New York City, he learned of the new will that had allegedly been signed by his client and listed him and Albert Patrick as executors. He was shocked to see the will had been signed in June of 1900 because he had witnessed Rice sign his 1896 will and was unaware of Rice wanting anything changed in the years that followed, especially the change that excluded a gift to the Rice Institute. When he saw this, Baker knew something was wrong and strongly suspected Rice had been murdered. The autopsy report for William Rice noted all of his organs appeared normal, but his lungs were congested. The doctor noted the congestion was the result of Rice inhaling some sort of gas that was an irritant and led police to believe there had been foul play 
Further testing was ordered with a chemist, finding there were traces of mercury in Rice's system, but not enough to have caused his death. He also noted there was evidence of arsenic in Rice's organs, but that was likely a result of the embalming fluid. That fluid was heavily charged with arsenic. The autopsy itself didn't provide concrete proof of murder. Within two weeks of William Rice's death, Charlie Jones and Albert Patrick were arrested and charged with forgery. Over the next few days, police realized Albert Patrick wasn't going to crack, so they went for the man who seemed the weaker of the two, the one who had seemingly been controlled by Albert Patrick. When pushed and shown evidence from the coroner and district attorney, Charlie Jones broke down. He accused Albert Patrick of crafting the plan to forge a fake will, steal Rice's money, and murder him. Jones told police that Patrick had been the one to pour chloroform onto a towel and hold it over Rice's face until he died. When Patrick learns of what Jones had said, he somehow managed to pass a knife to Charlie Jones in his jail cell, and he told Charlie it would be best if they both took their own lives. Charlie did attempt to take his life, but his wound was not fatal. Patrick never harmed himself and seemed to have suggested Charlie take his life so that Charlie would never testify against him. By January 1901, Charlie Jones admitted everything, including the fact he had conspired with Patrick to forge documents and steal from William Rice. And he confessed he had been the one who took William Rice's life, but Patrick had supplied the chloroform and poisons for the murder attempts. Charlie Jones' confession meant he got a deal from the state. He turned state's witness, was released from jail, and set up in a nice little apartment to await Albert Patrick's murder trial, which would get very complicated because doctors who testified for the defense would point out there was no way to know if William Rice was alive when that cloth had been placed on his face the day he died. Perhaps William Rice had already died and had not been murdered. When the prosecutor called Charlie Jones to the stand, Jones painted a powerful picture of the plan to steal from and then kill William Rice. Jones said he feared Albert Patrick and felt he had to do what he was told. Despite circumstantial evidence and the testimony from a co-conspirator who had changed his story, Charlie Jones' remorse and Albert Patrick's lack of emotion in the courtroom seemed to seal Patrick's fate. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death on March 26, 1902. The Senate ordered that Patrick be imprisoned at Sing Sing, where he would be executed by electrocution. Albert Patrick would represent himself as he appealed the conviction and turned his jail cell into an office for a long legal battle. His execution would be set and then called off twice before he won the support of influential people like the governor of New York and Mark Twain. The governor commuted Albert Patrick's sentence to life imprisonment in 1906. This was only part of Albert Patrick's legal battle. He wanted to be exonerated for the crime he said he did not commit. 
He continued to appeal his conviction and in 1912 was granted full pardon by the state of New York. That decision came after several prominent members of the New York medical community testified on Patrick's behalf, saying there was no way to medically prove William Rice had been murdered. All of them believed it was possible Rice had died before any attempt was made on his life that fateful day in 1900. Just one month before Albert Patrick was released from prison, the William Rice Institute was dedicated and opened in Houston. When Albert Patrick left prison, he tried to practice law and build a new life in New York. Despite some powerful members of the community believing Patrick innocent, he couldn't shake the past and the assumption of the general public that he was guilty of murder. Some of his colleagues weren't comfortable with him practicing law again in New York, and by 1930, he was disbarred. Albert Patrick left New York and started a new, unassuming life in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where most folks didn't know about his past. Albert Patrick died in 1930 at the age of 74. Charlie Jones was the man who got the deal from the state, but he was also the man who seemed to carry guilt over whatever really happened in Rice's apartment in September 1900. Charlie went home to Houston after the trial and lived in his brother's home, secluded from the public and carrying what his family called the weight of the world on his shoulders for decades. Fifty years after Charlie Jones made that deal with New York State, he took his own life in Texas. As to William Rice and his legacy, when his estate was settled in 1904, an endowment of $3 million was set aside for the Rice Institute, which we now know as Rice University. By the time the Institute opened in 1912, the endowment had increased to $9 million, ensuring all students who wanted to attend could do so free of charge. It remained that way until 1965. Well, all students could attend free of charge as long as they were white. The founding charter of 1912 included Rice's wishes for Rice Institute, which noted it would be for, quote, white inhabitants of the city of Houston and the state of Texas. That provision in the charter caused major issues when the university began the process of integration. That charter was well known and understood by students who attended Rice in those early years. As the Rice Historical Review has noted, several alumni filed lawsuits against Rice University fighting integration in the 1960s. They cited the charter as evidence that Rice only wanted white students to attend. In the end, the university won the case, but the trial cost time, and Rice University would be one of the last private universities to move forward with integration. When you take into consideration Rice's express wishes for a whites-only institution, the money he made off the slave economy in Texas, and that money becoming the foundation for Rice University's existence, and you have to feel a little conflicted about William Rice's legacy. You can understand why some students aren't comfortable walking past Rice on campus at Rice University. And they literally do walk past him 
Within a decade of the Institute opening, William Rice's ashes were interred beneath a monument that was built to honor him in the heart of campus. Students can't miss the Willie statue, as they call it. It's left many of them feeling unsettled in recent years, as more and more of William Marsh Rice's association with slavery has come to light. There have been protests held on campus with students calling for the removal of Willie's monument and an open dialogue about Rice's legacy. There was more to his life than a sensational crime and the mystery around his death. And the university is now asking some tough questions. How do you reckon the legacy of association with slavery and segregation with the money Rice endowed and his attorney fought to save to ensure Rice Institute would exist? Rice University has now launched a task force on slavery, segregation, and racial injustice. They're tasked with those hard questions, researching Rice's past and deciding what will become of that Rice statue on campus. Ultimately, it's a reminder that beneath the bronze statue of William Rice, towering over students at the university that bears his name, are the ashes of a man whose life and legacy are as complicated as the mystery of his death. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can see photos from this episode along with sources at southernmysteries.com. Special thanks to our newest Southern Mysteries patrons who helped make this independent podcast possible. Caroline from Raleigh, North Carolina, Polly from Denver, Colorado, and Chris from Asheville, North Carolina. As members of the show on Patreon, they get to hear bonus Southern Mysteries shorts each month as a thanks for their support. You can join them today at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. You could also support the show by subscribing where you're listening now and rating and reviewing the show as well. Thanks for doing that. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.